Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. It felt a bit like one of those end-of-the-world movies had come to life, didn't it? A year ago, the Prime Minister appeared on our televisions and in an extraordinarily powerful moment, changed everything. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. I urge you, at this moment of national emergency, to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. Few of us would probably have thought at that stage that it would be the first of three lockdowns so far, or that a year later we'd still be stuck at home, juggling webcams with homeschooling, learning a new way to wash our hands, instinctively stepping back when a stranger or friend got too close. For a year now, millions of us have lived from day to day with the idea that at any minute you could come down with a virus that may make you sick for a few days, or you may suffer absolutely no symptoms or ill health at all, or it may kill you. And you can never be absolutely certain which way it's going to go. Russian roulette, constantly, for months. The restrictions have now been around so long that it's our old way of life that's starting to feel abnormal. Honestly, if you lifted all these curbs overnight, I'm not sure how I'd cope. I've sort of got used to this rather isolated life, starting to like it, and rehabilitation to the outside world could take a while. That we are even able to consider such a thing is, of course, thanks to the miracle of the vaccines. The multi-billion pound financial gamble paid off spectacularly. The UK's vaccination programme has been an absolute triumph. And everyone involved deserves a huge amount of credit. Just imagine for a moment where we would have been at the end of last year if that Kent variant had emerged without a single working vaccine on the horizon to protect us. This past year has been the most acute reminder that money spent on medical and scientific research is rarely wasted. But let's be clear, the miracle of those vaccines absolutely does not absolve the government of blame for the missteps and failures that have been scattered across the last year or more. We are where we are, with more than 125,000 deaths and one of the worst death rates in the world because of decisions that were taken and decisions that were delayed. At first, the government seemed to think the UK was in some way immune from the global spread of this virus. Boris Johnson had agreed to tell a news conference that we should all stop shaking hands, and then minutes later said he was shaking hands with everyone. The virus was spreading far faster than anyone realised, and strategies of containment, even herd immunity, were never up to the task. The delay in ordering the first lockdown was bad enough, but the dithering over the second was unforgivable. By then, we knew exactly what the cost of delay would be, but still the Prime Minister vacillated when he should have acted. Johnson's now described as being actively hostile when a second lockdown was raised. Chiefly, it seems, though, it was out of fear. Fear of what a handful of loud-mouthed MPs or shouty newspaper columnists or shock jocks might say. More than half the lives lost to coronavirus in this country were lost after this point. Yet if anyone should have known the cost of delay, surely it should have been a man who came close to losing his own life to this virus. 
I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus, that's to say a temperature and a, a persistent cough. And on the advice of the chief medical officer, I've taken a test that has come out positive. So I am working from home. I'm self-isolating. And that's entirely the right thing to do. By the time the first lockdown was imposed, Downing Street was, by all accounts, riddled with COVID. We forget now just how genuinely destabilising a moment it was when Boris Johnson was first admitted to hospital and then moved to intensive care. How close was he to being put on a ventilator? How close were we to the death of a sitting Prime Minister, killed by a pandemic he had initially ignored and then dithered over? How shambolic did things really get at the top of government? Even if the long-promised public inquiry happens, we'll probably never find out. But when people involved in the government's response speak quietly of the situation being much worse than the public was told, you really wonder how much you actually want to know. How much of the time were those in charge just fumbling in the dark, praying they got the answer right? Also falling ill with COVID was Johnson's right-hand man. Dominic Cummings did what any caring partner or parent would do. He packed his highly infectious family into a car, drove 300 miles to County Durham, and then went for another drive with his wife and child in the car to see if he was so visually impaired it was unsafe to be driving. The blind man of Barnard Castle was eventually found out, but insisted his blatant breaking of the restrictions he helped to write was perfectly lawful. No, I don't. I don't regret um, what, what I did. As I, as I said, I think um, you know, reasonable people may well disagree about how I th- thought about what to do in in in, in the in the in these circumstances. But I think that I think that what I did was actually reasonable in these um, in these circumstances. This was for millions of people the breaking point. For two months, they had diligently followed rules that kept them apart from loved ones, kept them trapped in their homes, only for this guy to tell them they were chumps for following the rules. In a desperate effort to rewrite history, some in government now say that public adherence to the restrictions was already fading before Cummings' road trip came to light. But that's not true. This was the moment when public unity fractured. Even the government's toughest critics were backing the lockdown until they realised they'd been taken for mugs. Astonishingly, Johnson apparently considered sacking Cummings over this, but in the end kept him and used up a huge amount of political capital in backing him, tainted by Cummings' actions, only to then get rid of him anyway a few months later because of personality clashes in Downing Street. And we shouldn't forget the other failures of the past year either. Eat out to help out was a bribe to tempt us out of our homes, get us back into the habit of socialising, and it worked. And with it, it laid the foundations of the second wave that took off once university students were able to set up super-spreading clusters all over the country. Even when the evidence was plain, Boris Johnson and some of those around him held off, only to have to lock down harder and for longer. Of course, the nearly £40 billion spent on track and trace was meant to keep us safe, but the system was so desperately inefficient and poorly run, it would have struggled to trace someone who was sitting in the next room. And then there's care homes. Less than 1% of the population live in a care home, but care home residents account for around a quarter of all COVID deaths. 
Outbreaks receded when patients were discharged from hospitals without even testing them. Poorly paid agency staff had to travel from one home to another, inadvertently spreading the virus still further. And the protective equipment vital for NHS and care workers? Well, it almost ran out, as much as ministers now pretend it didn't. Contracts were hastily signed, often with friends of friends who wouldn't recognise a piece of protective equipment if they were being throttled with it. Meanwhile, the people we were clapping every week on our doorsteps were desperately fashioning gowns out of bin liners as they battled to save all our lives. You would, of course, need a heart of stone not to feel some measure of sympathy for ministers who could never have imagined they'd have to face anything like this. But hang on a minute. You don't become an MP by accident. You pursue it aggressively. Only the most ambitious and pushy can become ministers, and Boris Johnson has never, not for a moment, hidden his desperation to be Prime Minister. He must often look back at his prediction at the start of 2020 that it was going to be a great year for Britain and wonder where it all went wrong. But he survived his brush with Covid. 125,000 other people did not. A year into this catastrophe, where are we? Well, mostly we're at home, but psychologically, where are we? It's turned out to be a lot more exhausting than you might imagine hiding from a pandemic. Understandably, perhaps we seem generally to be a lot more angry. And we're always on the lookout for someone to be angry at. Sometimes it's entirely justified. And at this stage, I'm looking at you, Dominic Cummings. But sometimes it just seems to be some poor sod on the television whose crime was to crack a joke about a flag. Perhaps the way we can beat Covid once and for all when this is behind us is by doing something about the things that made it so much worse than it needed to be. Maybe it's finally time to devote some attention and some money to the care homes we trust to look after our most vulnerable citizens, but seem not to care about from one year to the next. Maybe in future we shouldn't cut corners on pandemic preparedness, or order PPE from a mate who runs a pub. Maybe we should address the inequalities that seem to have helped determine your fate if you got infected. Maybe in future, when scientists and doctors tell you a crisis is coming, you should do something about it, instead of just trying to wish it away. Maybe in the end, we haven't had enough of experts after all. That's it for now. Links, as ever, in the show description and at the website partygamespodcast.com. You can find all the old episodes and links to subscribe. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.